0: Chapter 10 of The Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter 10. Chemical changes which produce light and heat. To the popular mind a chemical laboratory is suggestive of explosions, reactions which result in the very evident production of light and heat and sound into the bargain. But it is not necessary to visit a chemical laboratory in order to observe chemical changes which produce light and heat, for we are all chemists to some extent at our own firesides. When we strike a match or light a fire, we make a chemical experiment, but the red flower is so familiar to us that we miss the meaning and the marvel of it. The making of fire is one of the oldest chemical achievements of the human race, and in our modern world the part played by combustion is of enormous importance. A little thought will show it is on those chemical changes which produce light and heat that we depend for a great many of our modern social conveniences where does the power come from which drives our motor-cars why from the combustion of petrol further when a man stands on the foot-plate of a flying scotchman or in the engine-room of the mauritania he begins to understand what wonders in the way of locomotion we owe to the combustion of coal ah yes some reader may say but we are going in for electricity nowadays are we not we are lighting our streets with electric light instead of gas and our railways are being electrified that is all quite true but even then we have not got rid of combustion as the source of nearly all our energy except where water power is available the introduction of electricity means simply that the combustion has been centralized instead of burning gas at each street lamp we burn coal or gas at some central furnace and use up the energy of combustion in driving a dynamo instead of having a fire on each locomotive we have again a central furnace at the power station hence the production of energy whatever its form still depends almost exclusively on the time-honoured process of combustion now although the various things which are burned for the purpose of producing light and heat are outwardly very different gas coal paraffin oil candles wood methylated spirits petroleum peat etc the process of combustion is essentially the same in each case the substances just mentioned are alike in containing carbon and hydrogen either in the form of the elements themselves, or in the form of compounds, and the process of combustion is simply the chemical combination of these two elements with the oxygen of the atmosphere. Hence, if we understand what happens in the combustion of a candle, for example, we should be able to give an intelligent explanation of what takes place in a paraffin oil lamp or in a coal fire. When the carbon and hydrogen in a candle combine with the oxygen of the atmosphere, the products are our old friends carbon dioxide and water carbon dioxide is an invisible gas as the reader will remember and the water formed in the flame is given off as an invisible vapor the candle therefore gradually disappears as it burns leaving little or no trace behind to the superficial observer the fact that the candle disappears and leaves nothing tangible in exchange might seem to throw doubt on the law of conservation of matter according to which matter cannot be destroyed But it will be admitted that the law would still be fulfilled if the disappearance of so much matter in one form were compensated by the production of an equivalent amount in another form, and the reader who has followed the argument of the foregoing chapters will recognize that some forms of matter are invisible. The fact is, the invisible products of the combustion of a candle, that is, the carbon dioxide and the water vapor, weigh more than the candle. This is only natural, for just as it takes two to make a quarrel, So there are two parties to a combustion, namely, the combustible substance, in this case the candle, and the supporter of combustion, the oxygen from the air. As the combustion consists in a combination of the carbon and hydrogen of the candle with the oxygen of the air, the products are necessarily heavier than either the candle or the oxygen separately. The chemist can easily show that this is so by absorbing and weighing the carbon dioxide and water but it will be sufficient for our purpose to show that each of these substances is present in the gases arising from a candle flame in order to show that carbon dioxide is one product of a candle flame we may fix a small piece of candle on a wire light the candle and lower it into a glass jar into which we have previously poured a little lime water when the candle has been allowed to burn in the jar for ten or fifteen seconds it is taken out the jar is closed by a cork and the contents are shaken it will then be seen That THE LIME WATER HAS BECOME TURBID, SHOWING THAT THE AIR LEFT IN THE JAR AFTER THE BURNING OF THE CANDLE CONTAINED CARBON DIOXIDE. THE PRODUCTION OF WATER IN THE FLAME OF A BURNING CANDLE MAY BE VERY READILY DEMONSTRATED WITH DOMESTIC APPARATUS. A TUMBLER OF COLD WATER, THE COLDER THE BETTER, IS CAREFULLY WIPED ON THE OUTSIDE, SO THAT IT IS PERFECTLY DRY, AND IS THEN HELD A LITTLE ABOVE THE CANDLE FLAME. THE OUTSIDE OF THE TUMBLER AT ONCE BECOMES CLOUDY, OWING TO THE CONDENSATION OF TINY DROPS OF WATER the extent to which carbonaceous fuel is converted into carbon dioxide and water depends on the supply of the air which supports the combustion if for any reason the supply of air is cut off combustion ceases hence it comes that a candle cannot continue to burn in a closed space for more than a very short time not only does it exhaust the oxygen but by its own combustion it produces substances which are unfavourable to a continuance of the process In an atmosphere of carbon dioxide and water vapor, no combustion is possible. On the other hand, the more air or oxygen we supply to the burning fuel, the more complete is the combustion. The oldest method of supplying more air to burning fuel, and thereby securing more complete combustion, is the familiar one of making a draft. The difference between an oil lamp flame with the chimney off and the same flame with the chimney on is due to the draft which the chimney makes this draught means an inrush of air at the bottom of the chimney and a better supply of oxygen to the flame of the burning oil perhaps the reader has tried sometimes to fan the flickering flame of a newly-lit flyer by holding a newspaper in front of the upper part of the grate the result of this is that the chimney draught sucks the air right through the fuel which is thereby fed more perfectly with the oxygen it so badly needs if the newspaper were not there the bulk of the air which is drawn up the chimney would come in through the upper part of the grate front without passing through the fuel the village blacksmith too when he makes his bellows roar is in quest of more rapid combustion and consequently more intense heat imperfect combustion is responsible for the smoke that hangs like a pall over so many of our large cities we in england insist on having the cheery but unscientific open fireplace with the result that the fuel is imperfectly burned and our chimneys pour a constant stream of smoke into the atmosphere smoke is charged not only with finely divided carbon and soot but also with oily and tarry vapour whereas if there were perfect combustion nothing but invisible gases would leave the chimney just imagine what that would mean apart from the saving in fuel we should never require the services of the chimney-sweep and we should be spared many of the grimy fogs which come especially in london to clog our breathing organs and to depress our spirits why should it be so uneconomical and unscientific to burn coal in such open fireplaces as are common in england the key to the answer lies in the fact that when coal is heated it first gives off a quantity of inflammable gas and it is really this gas which burns when we put coal on a fire but unfortunately in our open fires the fresh coal is put on the top so that the gas which comes out of the coal as it gets warmed up is in a part of the fire where the supply of oxygen is limited not only has a considerable portion of the oxygen been used up in the combustion of the glowing fuel at the bottom of the grate but the carbon dioxide which is produced there and which ascends through the freshly added fuel makes it impossible to get perfect combustion of the latter hence it comes that quite a respectable fraction of our best household coal simply goes up the chimney unburnt to become subsequently a nuisance to ourselves and our neighbours the abolition of smoke is a consummation devoutly to be hoped for and considerable advance has already been made in that direction. Improvement has been effected chiefly in the diminution of smoke emitted from factory chimneys. For this we are indebted, partly at least, to the introduction of mechanical stokers, which feed coal into factory furnaces so that the fresh fuel is put where it has an excellent supply of oxygen. The mechanical stoker subsequently moves the coal onto other and hotter parts of the furnace, and it has the further advantage that it obviates the necessity of opening the furnace doors an operation which involves the admission of a draft of cold air. Appliances have been devised for securing more perfect combustion in house fires by introducing the coal from below, but none of these have come into general use. The adoption of such a plan would involve the reconstruction of all our fireplaces. Another method of getting rid of the smoke nuisance is to subject the coal to destructive heating in a gas works and to use the gas so obtained for heating purposes instead of coal. This is the plan that will probably be adopted in the long run. A gas stove is, however, much less fascinating than a coal fire. Sentiment clings round the old fireside, and the institution will die hard. When gas or a candle burns in the air, the supply of oxygen is not sufficient for complete combustion of the carbon and the hydrogen, except in the outermost envelope of the flame, and the fact that we get any light at all from an ordinary gas or candle flame is due to a host of unburnt particles of carbon in the interior. These particles are raised to a white heat by the flame, and so make it luminous. That the ordinary gas or candle flame contains particles of carbon may be very easily shown by holding a cold surface just into the top of the flame, when a deposit of soot, that is carbon in a finely divided form, is obtained. When the supply of air to a gas flame is increased by mixing the gas with air just before it reaches the actual place where it is burned then the combustion is more complete the flame is hotter and no longer luminous the particles of carbon which ordinarily make the flame luminous are now all converted into carbon dioxide even in the interior of the flame by the extra oxygen supplied this is the principle of the well-known bunsen burner which finds application now not only in the laboratory but in our houses, on incandescent burners and gas stoves. A simple Bunsen burner is shown in the accompanying diagram. The current of gas, which rushes out at the central nozzle, sucks in air through the surrounding holes at the bottom of the burner, while the mixture of air and gas ascends and is burned at the top of the tube. The flame is very hot, gives out almost no light, and if a cold surface is put into the flame, no soot is deposited. This kind of flame is therefore especially suitable for heating and cooking purposes, for blackening of the utensils is avoided. The part played by the air in such a burner can be very simply demonstrated. If the burner is lighted and the observer puts his fingers over the air inlet holes at the bottom of the tube, the flame, instead of giving practically no light, becomes luminous at once. If the reader will take the trouble, this little experiment may be carried out with an ordinary incandescent burner the air inlet holes are easily discovered, and if the burner is lit on some occasion, when the mantle has been removed, the effect of letting in or shutting off the extra supply of air is very evident. It has been already stated that an ordinary gas or candle flame is luminous because it contains particles of unburnt carbon which are raised to incandescence and so emit light. If this is so, then we may expect that if we take a non-luminous flame like that of a Bunsen burner, and introduce into it some solid substance which can stand a very high temperature without melting, this flame will become a source of light. This is exactly the principle which has been applied in our modern incandescent burners. As has just been pointed out, the flame of an incandescent burner, apart from the mantle, is quite without luminosity, and the mantle is simply an infusible substance which is raised to incandescence by the heat of the flame. A similar device used to be much in vogue for the exhibition of lantern slides in the so-called limelight. By allowing a very hot flame to play on a little lump of lime, the latter is raised to white heat and emits a very powerful light. In an electric glow lamp, the light proceeds from a carbon filament raised to incandescence, but in this case the source of heat is an electric current, not a flame of burning gas. The electric glow lamp furnishes, at the same time, An interesting illustration of what has been said about there being two parties to a combustion. The filament in the lamp is made of carbon. There it is glowing brightly, and yet apparently it suffers no wastage. It appears to burn, but it is not consumed. Why is this? Because the other party to a combustion, the oxygen, is absent on this occasion. The lamp has been rendered vacuous during the process of manufacture. That is, the air which it contained was removed, and so no combustion is possible the tender little filament is protected by its glass cage from the hordes of oxygen molecules that would be only too ready to fall upon it if they had the chance. It must not be supposed that the term combustion is to be applied exclusively to those cases where a carbonaceous fuel is burned. Many other substances combine readily with the oxygen of the air, and the chemical change involved in this combination produces light and heat. Everybody who has seen an underground cavern illuminated by the burning of magnesium ribbon knows what an intense light is emitted in this process, and the process is essentially the same as the burning of a piece of charcoal. When charcoal is burned, oxide of carbon, carbon dioxide, is produced. When magnesium is burned, oxide of magnesium, magnesia, is produced. The burning of magnesium illustrates very excellently one or two points which have been mentioned already. In the first place, It shows what fundamental changes those substances undergo which take part in a chemical action we start with a piece of metallic ribbon and the invisible air and there is left behind a soft white powdery mass of magnesia in the second place the intense light observed when magnesium burns is due to the presence of little particles of infusible magnesia which are rendered incandescent by the great heat of the chemical action again it is easy to show that just as the carbon dioxide and water produced by the combustion of a candle are heavier than the candle, so the white powder produced by the burning of a piece of magnesium ribbon weighs more than the ribbon. The discovery that the products of combustion are heavier than the combustible substance was really a very important one in the history of chemistry. For, up to about 120 years ago, it was generally supposed that a combustible substance contained something called phlogiston, which came out of the substance when it was burned it was the famous french chemist lavoisier who finally overthrew this theory and emphasized the fact that instead of losing anything when it was burned a combustible substance actually became heavier the meaning of the term combustion has been extended in the foregoing paragraphs so that the burning of coal and the burning of magnesium are brought under the same category we may now extend the term still further to cover many chemical processes which, although they do not very obviously produce light and heat, yet depend essentially on the same chemical phenomenon, namely, the combination of some substance with the oxygen of the atmosphere. These are the cases of slow combustion, and may be referred to generally as oxidation processes. One of these processes, which, without producing any light, produces a good deal of heat, is the respiration of animals. What goes on in our bodies, through the agency of the lungs and the blood, is neither more nor less than a combustion in the course of which the carbon compounds in the body the fat etc are burned to carbon dioxide and water it is very easy to show that air expired from the lungs is heavily charged with carbon dioxide ordinary fresh air contains so little of this gas that a pint bottleful produces no milkiness when shaken up with a little lime-water but if the air which we breathe or blow out from our lungs is made to bubble through a little lime-water a very marked turbidity appears. Exact measurements have shown that whereas fresh air contains three to four parts by volume of carbon dioxide in 10,000, the air which issues from the lungs is charged to the extent of 400 to 450 parts carbon dioxide in 10,000. A little carbon dioxide is also given off through the skin, and it is computed that the total carbon dioxide evolved by the lungs and skin is about three quarters of a cubic foot per hour. An ordinary gas burner produces about one and a half cubic feet of carbon dioxide in the same time, so that, as far as the contamination of the air in a room is concerned, a gas burner is equal to two men. Another change which comes under the same category as respiration, and which we might describe as a slow combustion, is the rusting of iron. Rusting is the combination of the metal with the oxygen of the air, and is thus exactly parallel to the burning of magnesium ribbon, except that it takes so much longer the total heat evolved in the process of rusting is not any less than it would be if the oxidation took place rapidly it is only spread over such a long time that the evolution of heat at any particular moment is not noticeable rusting is an example of spontaneous oxidation it is not necessary to strike a match to start the process rusting is only too ready as we often know to our cost to start on its own account it is indeed essential That carbon dioxide and moisture should be present before rusting can take place. But these substances are both present to some extent in ordinary air, and the only way to keep iron from rusting is either to paint it or to plate it with some other metal which is less ready to hold traffic with the air. Metals which are commonly used for this purpose are zinc tin and nickel. Galvanized iron and tin plate, which are manufactured in such large quantities, are simply iron which has been coated with zinc and tin respectively. In order to protect it from corrosion, every cyclist knows that so long as the nickel plating of his handlebars is intact, there is very little tendency to tarnish, but that whenever the protective layer of nickel has been removed, rust is not long in putting in an appearance. End of chapter ten